Hello and welcome to Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds, the show where I, Eddie Hurst, take apart and put back together H.G. Wells' seminal science fiction novel, The War of the Worlds, with added jokes, songs, deep dive tangents, and this is chapter 8, Dead London. We're nearing the end of the novel now. What a hell of a journey it's been, but I tell you what, we've we've had some laughs, haven't we? We've had we've had some laughs. We've had some had some laughs. Uh, but honestly, thank you so much to everybody who's who's joined uh, and listened along. And if this is your first episode, I, I'll, I mean, fine, welcome, please, crack on with listening. But I would recommend you start uh, a book one, chapter one, because oh my god, you've missed a lot, and and things are really going to take a turn in this chapter. This is a this is a a big chapter in terms of narrative and a big chapter in terms of podcast production uh, because uh, I've 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 opened the doors to uh, Glaswegian comedy collective chunks uh, who do some fantastic experimental comedy i've invited them on and I've, had, I've got a few of the members to come along and, and and give me their hot takes as we read along with some of the chapters so uh, we've got gabriel featherstone we've got david callahan and we've got richard brown um, you're going to be hearing from them more as we go into it what's that to say well as you'll remember from uh, chapter seven the artilleryman had a had a, had a moment didn't he? he he started living underground started encouraging the narrator to join him living underground in his bunker that he'd started building which of course was only about six feet into the ground uh, which isn't the strongest start uh, admittedly but hey he did teach the narrator how to have biscuits so that's something in it uh, what's going to happen in this chapter well the the narrator gets into london i don't want to spoil too much of it but uh, there's been some big changes uh, a change of tide the current the current of the ocean that is war of the worlds has shifted the moon has pulled i don't really know where i'm going with this metaphor the moon i think the moon pulls waves doesn't it isn't that how it works the the, the gravity of the moon uh, pull, pulls the waves in the ocean and i think that's why we get the tide and why it goes in and why it comes out more uh you don't need to i mean maybe i'd argue if you're a tidal engineer you do need to know that but the majority the rest of us i think we're safe in not not being essential knowledge uh in our lives uh, just know the tides of this book are a changing uh i don't know uh, we'll, we'll find out in a moment but uh, before we go into that big thank you to everybody who came out to see me in brighton and in london um thank thank you uh, the shows have gone well it's been it's been mad doing doing a live version of this and this podcast is kind of a podcast version of the live show so it's 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 been great to do it's mad fun for me so thank you very much for everyone who's come along um next ones i've got coming up are buxton on the 7th and 14th of july at the underground venue um also i'm doing a run in edinburgh the edinburgh fringe uh, also 20, 23rd of july i'm in nairsborough at the fraser theater and then i'm also in manchester with blizzard comedy on the 28th of july so if any of those are near to you and you fancy fighting the martian invasion giving us a hand with it come along and then also in august i'm at edinburgh doing a run from the 16th to the 23rd at the mash house at 10:40 p.m so uh yeah come along come along why not uh please do rate subscribe and and follow the podcast and the reviews do really help um you know just recently we were back in the charts across the uk and australia and i still can't get over the fact that i was the number one science fiction podcast in bermuda i mean i'm not anymore which is absolutely fair but what a what a what a what a a while that was to 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 look at flights to bermuda and see if the audience would come out for it that was great so look I've, i've babbled on for long enough uh please like rate subscribe to the podcast thank you so much for listening um follow me at social media at eddie hurst uh edy hurst on instagram twitter facebook and all that and i'll i'll speak to you at the end chapter eight dead london hello richard brown how do you do i do very well i am a stand-up comedian and writer and uh, I, I do other stuff as well so this episode uh, it's a little bit different than the other ones because normally i'd have one guest on for a little bit I thought I thought for for chapter for chapter eight, Dead London, I'd do it a little bit different, and we'd have a I'd invite I'd invite the Chunks uh, Comedy Collective on. Um, so would you be able to to sort of explain for for everyone what what Chunks is? Yeah, so Chunks is a, a sort of it's sort of a collective, but it's open to everyone. A once a month gig where absolutely anyone can perform, but you cannot do stand. You can do anything to make the audience laugh, but you can't do stand up. 
and you can't do more than three minutes at a time, but you can go up multiple times. So it means that people can do like batshit crazy ideas that they would not do in front of like a legit promoter yeah, in case yeah, yeah, they embarrass yeah. themselves and don't get booked <laughs> again. We're like a safe place to try your most insane ideas. And we keep it to three minutes for the sake of the audience. <laughs> I I remember doing it, uh, being part part of a night on the, when you were at the Fringe 2019. Yes. And, uh, Did you do, was it Samuel Beckett's Borat? Oh, Alan no. Bennett Borat. That was it. Alan Bennett. Although Samuel Beckett Borat sounds even better. Um, so we'll we'll hear you a little bit later on. Uh, but I, I wanted to have that introduction for for listeners uh, to to be aware of what's going to happen. We've got Gabriel Featherstone and David Callahan coming on also later on. So you guys are going to jump in with me and read along a bit. But also get ready because a little later on, I think we're going to see you back, Richard, and we're going to have a little chat about perhaps a, a subject that you're very passionate about that might not be what somebody thinks immediately. (laughs) After I had parted from the artilleryman, I went down the hill and by the high street across the bridge to Fulham. The red weed was tumultuous at that time and nearly choked the bridge roadway but its fronds were already whitened in patches by the spreading disease that presently removed it so swiftly. Ah, oh man, just as I got to know the red weed, it was gone. You know, I was starting to understand the character of it, getting how it's moving, and it's just a bit, well, what a shame. Well, I'm sure that's only, it's just the red weed. I'm sure it won't affect anything else. Let's get back on with it. At the corner of the lane that runs to Putney Bridge Station, I found a man lying. Yeah, he was, uh, he was saying, uh, he was saying pigs could fly, and I said, uh, well, are you a big African cat? Because uh, you're lying. Hello? Any, any, anyone? He was as black as a sweep with the black dust. Alive, but helplessly and speechlessly drunk. I could get nothing from him but curses and furious lunges at my head. Sounds like most of your interactions, then. I think I should have stayed by him but for the brutal expression of his face. There was black dust along the roadway from the bridge onwards and it grew thicker in Fulham. The streets were horribly quiet. I got food, sour, hard and mouldy, but quite eatable, in a baker's shop here. I mean, that's one hell of a trip advisor of you, innit? Some way towards Wallham Green, the streets became clear of powder, and I passed a white terrace of houses on fire. The noises of the burning was an absolute relief. Going on towards Brompton, the streets were quiet again. Here I came once more upon the black powder in the streets and upon dead bodies. I saw altogether about a dozen in the length of the Fulham Road. They had been dead many days, so that I hurried quickly past them. The black powder covered them over and softened their outlines. One or two had been disturbed by dogs. Oi, calm down! Some of us are trying to be dead here! Yeah, mate! Where there was no black powder, It was curiously like a Sunday in the city. With the closed shops, the houses locked up and blinds drawn, the desertion and the stillness. In some places, plunderers had been at work, but rarely at other than the provision and wine shops. A jeweler's window had been broken open in one place, but apparently the thief had been disturbed and a number of gold chains and a watch lay scattered on the pavement. I did not trouble to touch them. Farther on was a tattered woman in a heap on a doorstep. The hand that hung over her knee was gashed and bled down her rusty brown dress, and a smashed magnum of champagne formed a pool across the pavement. She seemed asleep, but she was dead. The farther I penetrated into London, the profounder grew the stillness. But it was not so much the stillness of death It was the stillness of suspense, of expectation. At any time, the destruction that had already singed the northwestern borders of the metropolis and had annihilated Ealing and Kilburn might strike among these houses and leave them smoking ruins. It was a city condemned and derelict. 
ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, David Callahan. Hello, David Callahan. How are you doing? Hello. I'm all right. You are a, a fantastic comedian, and you're you're doing some amazing uh, programming, uh, like video game comedy stuff. That's a very very reductive way of saying what it is, but I like it. No, I don't know. Positive. <laughs> that is. I'm yet to find a description for it. Um, uh, no, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I took the first lockdown to do uh, master's degree in animation, and now I'm doing the PhD in the very same thing. There's lots of code in that. Um, decided to do animation live, stand-up things, and now I do a quarterly gig in Glasgow at the old hairdressers called Programimate, which is uh, animation and programming and stand-up and other bits and pieces next one's on june 16th i I've, I've sent you i've sent you bits over for this and i've given you no context mm-hmm. uh so um let's well what what i'll do is i like like we're making a croissant um i'm gonna fold the context over onto the butter that is you uh does that make yeah. sense yeah uh, <laughs> oh yeah i like this analogy spread me <laughs> spread me Put a hot knife in me and spread me. A lot of my listeners uh, are very big into baking, I'm sure. Uh, I've never asked them before, but I'm assuming. So this is probably a safe bet. Keep me in a dish by, on the side for breakfast. That's what I always say. That's my catchphrase. Don't put me in the fridge. I'll be too hard for you. I'll rip your toast. Don't put me in the fridge. I'll rip your toast. You know, you know, Summer War of the World. Sure. Basically, we're taking apart the chapter, which is book two, chapter eight, Dead London. Mm. Uh, which is uh, what? What? What do you make of that? What do you make of that title? I bloody wish it was. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> God, oh no! Oh no! I bloody um. I tell you what. I, I think people assume that because I'm from the northeast of England, I like really hate London. Um, I have no opinion on it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it lives entirely outside of my uh, my, my sphere. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because this is Edwardian London, isn't it? Well, so it's it's interesting. So the book was written and published in 1896, but it is set yeah. in the early 20th century. So right. it is Edwardian, but not that he would have known that. No, that, no, no, he know wouldn't know what Edwardian. Yeah, 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 yeah. But late Victorian. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. does Queen Victoria die? Nineteen oh three or something. Bloody hell, you're on it. I think it might be. I did economic and social history at university, so I probably should know that. It's not far off. If it's not that on the nose, it's very close. He's sort of describing walking through uh, this part of London, and it's like oh, the mansion houses, and he's coming out to Regent Square, and like it's all of these things. Like the London now, from my visits, has become so kind of capitalised that. Um, that it would be like, oh, I turned left at the M&M store and I ran as fast as I could <laughs> towards the Pratt. Uh, <laughs> I, I picked up a bike for 12 quid an hour and I rode it through the, you know. <laughs> Famously, the narrator cannot ride a bike, so he would not be getting on that rental bike. I'll be honest with you, once the post-apocalypse comes around, I'm not great on a bike. I've not ridden one since I was about 12. <laughs> I'm, I'll just learn. I, I've heard that it's quite easy. You pick it up. There's a phrase I can't remember, but um, you never forget, and it's easy to pick up. But I think there's also other skills that I would have to pick up. I, don't, I think I would have to forage for food and like grow things and stuff. I don't think my skill set now is like that's so limiting for when the aliens attack. If I manage to escape the initial alien attack, which I'm not saying I will, I don't think I'm gonna get to um like there'll be a there'll be a, like I'll find a double decker bus or something that has the keys in it, I'll go, oh sorry, I don't have my bus driver's license. <laughs> so I'm I can't ride that. I'll just I'll, do you know, I'll just turn myself into the tripods. I think they'll understand my honesty. Hey, should we read this chapter? Absolutely. In South Kensington, the streets were clear of dead and of black powder. It was near South Kensington that I first heard the howling. Just to say, it would be like that in South Kensington, wouldn't it? If there's if there's going to be anywhere in London that doesn't have the dead and black powder, oh, the streets were full of uh, media degrees and white powder. (laughs) The emotionally dead, the socially alive. It crept almost imperceptibly upon my senses. And it was a sobbing alternation of two notes. Do you want to have a Do you want to have a go at the notes, David? Well, you see, it's two notes, but he's spelt it ola 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 ola, which I mean, I don't know what you know. Even um, 
if you read out the lyrics to, I don't know, like, uh, <laughs> um, what's that? Saturday Night by uh, Wigfield. Um, oh, yeah. That, at least when you read that out, and I've done that in karaoke, and I, you know, I don't know if Wigfield did that especially, but at least that is different. All I'm, I'm not saying that Wigfield is a better writer than she uh, <laughs> was, but I, I, I'm just saying that this bit, lyrically, she's clearer. <laughs> on perpetually. When I passed streets that ran northward it grew in volume, and houses and buildings seemed to deaden and cut it off again. It came in a full tide down Exhibition Road. Have you, have you been down there? Like to, to Natural History Museum and Science Museum and all that? When I was a child, yes. Uh, but probably not. I don't think I've been to the National History Museum since the 90s. Uh, I, d I doubt it's different, unless unless there's been big changes in the natural world. Oh, uh, you like... better! They've put more animatronics in than you can shake a shake a, a remote at. Yeah, a lot of dinosaur animatronics. I just thought, you know, they've not discovered new animals, but I guess they've discovered new ways to um, to monetize attendance. So <laughs> I stopped, staring towards Kensington Gardens, wondering at this strange remote wailing. It was as if that mighty desert of houses had found a voice for its fear and solitude. Wailed that superhuman note, great waves of sound sweeping down the broad, sunlit roadway between the tall buildings on each side. I turned northwards, marvelling, towards the iron gates of Hyde Park. I had half a mind to break into the Natural History Museum. It would get you immediately because you'd walk in and there would be a hologram that says like, oh, I, it, would, it would interpret your movements and go, I see you're trying to hide for some aliens. Would you like to try the fifth floor? That's where the cafe is. That feels like a very Steven Spielberg thing to put in, like get Michael Sheen doing that. Would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Michael Sheen pretending to be Richard Owen, <laughs> welcoming people into the Natural History Museum would be just nah, delicious. And find my way up to the summit of the towers in order to see across the park. But I decided to keep to the ground where quick hiding was possible. And so went on up the exhibition road. All the large mansions on each side of the road were empty and still and my footsteps echoed against the sides of the houses. At the top, near the park gate, I came upon a strange sight. A bus overturned, and the skeleton of a horse picked clean. I puzzled over this for a time, and then went on to the bridge over the serpentine. I really like the idea that the horse is driving the bus. <laughs> it is! It is though! It's, an, it's the, uh, the old omnibus. Uh, is what it would have been, so like a horse-drawn boy. Oh, of course it is. That makes a lot more sense. Uh, I genuinely had pictured a kind of on the buses character of a horse with uh, <laughs> the driver's hat on, with holes cut out where the ears were going through. The voice grew stronger and stronger, though I could see nothing above the housetops on the north side of the park, save a haze of smoke to the northwest. cried the voice, coming, as it seemed to me, from the district about Regent's Park. The desolating cry worked upon my mind. The mood that had sustained me passed. The wailing took possession of me. Is he moving towards the sound? Of course he is. Yeah. He's, moving, he's yeah. moving towards the sound. Yeah. This, right. is, uh, this is what he does. Despite the fact he is, by all accounts, a coward and not very good in a physical fight, um, okay. He will always if, move towards the danger. If I'd seen, uh, if I'd seen a horse that had, that had been reduced to a skeleton, picked clean, by the way, like which implies like a vulture or something. In my head, the tripod's really, really big, huge discs, you know, with really long legs. So what happens there? Do they do they sort of squat down <laughs> to the floor and suck the skin off a horse? Because that's, <laughs> that's quite a suck the skin off a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why he's going. <laughs>
<laughs> See what it's done the horse that's gone. I'll have a bit of that. <laughs> it's a oh, mucky book, this. You've, you've made me read a mucky book. I found I was intensely wary, foot sore, and now again hungry and thirsty. It was already past noon. Why was I wandering alone in the city of the dead? Why was I alone when all London was lying in state and in its black shroud? I felt intolerably lonely. My mind ran on old friends that I'd forgotten for years. I thought of the poisons in the chemist shops, of the liquors the wine merchants stored. I recalled the two sodden creatures of despair, who, so far as I knew, shared the city with myself. I came into Oxford Street by the Marble Arch, and here again were black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I grew very thirsty after the heat of my long walk. With infinite trouble, I managed to break into a public house and get food and drink. I find it weird that, because he's struggled perennially, I mean, it's either, which is more, you know, Occam's razor, is this guy who struggles, full stop. But, on yeah. the other hand, have people been like, oh, Martians have invaded, I better lock and board up the pub and then fuck off. <laughs> like, I just find it really... Yeah. Yeah, there'd be loads of open houses. You wouldn't, wouldn't go like, oh, well, I need to make sure. I'll tell you what, the Martians come round, they'll be having the telly. I'll make sure that the PS5 is is locked up. Right, everything's locked up. It's not. Oh, God, I, I can't believe it. I've left the oven on in the. Yeah. I've got to go back in. It's just like, what? You know, you're not going back, are you? You know, you, it's uh, done. Also, in this part of London, he breaks into one. It's infinite trouble to break into one pub. There's pubs on every corner. You just go, oh, God, I can't get in this one. I'll just go to the... I'll go to the next one. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, Maybe, I mean, maybe he really loves this pub. This is like a, um, like an anti-Martian place that he thinks, oh, they won't come here. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, of, just... lot of a lot of George's flags. <laughs> on, the, on the outside it says, no football colours, no work clothes, no Martians. <laughs> No, well, they won't come in. They won't come in here because they're bad. <laughs> They'll have to put on proper shoes on their little spindle legs. <laughs> I was weary after eating, and went into the parlour behind the bar, and slept on a black horsehair sofa I found there. I awoke to find that dismal howling still in my ears. It was now dusk, and after I had rooted out some biscuits and cheese in the bar. There was a meat safe, but it contained nothing but maggots. I wandered through the silent residential squares to Baker Street. Portman Square is the only one I can name, and so came out at last upon Regent's Park. And as I emerged from the top of Baker Street, I saw far away, over the trees in the clearness of the sunset, the hood of the Martian giant from which this howling proceeded. I was not terrified. I came upon him as if it were a matter of course. I watched him for some time, but he did not move. He appeared to be standing and yelling for no reason that I could discover. That's great. I love the idea that H.G. Wells thinks he's an, an, an empath. They could be like, well, well, listen, once I see the tripod, I'll understand the reason. No, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm a tripod person. I'm a tripod person. These tripods... We just get on. As soon as I see the tripod, I'll know what the tripod's screaming about. Maybe we can sort it out. Uh, you know, I've got very good inter-tripod skills. So I'll... <laughs> For yelling! Yeah, how are you going to describe what this... What Ula, 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 Ula is? Yelling! Hoi! <laughs> stop yelling! Some of us are trying to sleep! Keep it down. I've just had. I've just had. Nearly had some maggots in the pub, mate. I've been <laughs> sleepy on my feet. I heard. And now you're just out here yelling. Do you not understand? The we have laws around here against giant discs making noise <laughs> between the hours of six and eight. I tried to formulate a plan of action. That perpetual sound of. <laughs> confused my mind. 
Guys, you know me, I like to interrupt the book, but I don't like to play fast and loose of editorial choices. However, I want to make it clear for you, every time in the writing it says Ula, it does it four times. However, I've just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lower it to two Ulas ago this time, because, look, whilst I'm sure we're all enjoying my production here, I think there is a limit for how reasonable it is for you to hear Ula. played four times in a row. Perhaps I was too tired to be very fearful. Certainly I was more curious to know the reason of this monotonous crying than afraid. I turned back, away from the park, and struck into Park Road, intending to skirt the park, went along under the shelter of the terraces, and got a view of this stationary, howling Martian from the direction of St John's Wood. A couple of hundred yards out of Baker Street, I heard a yelping chorus, and saw... First, a dog with a piece of putrescent red meat in his jaws coming headlong towards me, and then a pack of starving mongrels in pursuit of him. He made a wide curve to avoid me, as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. As the yelping died away down the silent road, the wailing sound of reasserted itself. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, Gabriel Featherstone. I'm, I'm Gabe. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you all. I'm sure we're all going to become uh, very good friends very soon. Uh, I'm a comedian from Glasgow. I sing songs and uh, and make like weird puppets um, and attempt to make people laugh in pub basements and various other contexts. So have you have you read War of the Worlds before? Do you have any any do you know anything of War of the Worlds? I know a bit about it. I've I've read The Time Machine. Um I've read um a pamphlet about H.G. Wells' sex life. Uh apparently he was very he was a polyamorous fellow. I think he he wrote a book about it, but I think it was it was published posthumously. He wrote a, he wrote a book that was called something like my fabulous shag diary by H.G. Wells. <laughs> That's a great title. I didn't. I didn't really read a pamphlet. I was lying. What actually happened was my was my friend, a man, who isn't a pamphlet, uh, explained to me that he'd read a book about H.G. Wells's sex life, um, and he was outraged that it wasn't filthier than than he had hoped. <laughs> War of the Worlds and the Time Machine came out. I think it was like within two years of each other. So it's very much his like style period. You know what I mean? Like. He was having these sort of ideas for books and then he was making them. Having the idea first and then writing the book is a good way around to do it. <laughs> if you write the book first and then have the idea afterwards, I, I, it's likely not to be as successful. I've made that mistake. Uh, just just like 500 pages of someone just going, um, uh, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I came upon the wrecked handling machine halfway to St. John's Wood Station. I was, I was going to make a hilarious joke about him coming upon the handling machine and asking if the, if, if the handling machine was was some kind of steampunk masturbatory apparatus. Like, you know, the big hands that, that dress Wallace and Wallace and Grumman, oh, something God. like that, but for masturbatory purposes and, and fueled by coal. Um, was that worth uh, interrupting you in sense? <laughs> I'm not sure it was. I feel a, a degree of shame. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Of all of the adaptations of War of the Worlds that have been, I think you've found the niche in the market. That's it. Steampunk I'd, porn. That's I'd what people very, want. I'd be very, very surprised if there wasn't a War of the Worlds pornographic adaptation. Because it's got, like, tentacle monsters in it. And, and you know, there's a lot of people That's... who appreciate, there's a lot of people who admire the genre of tentacle monster pornography and there's probably some people in the middle of the venn diagram who are like they're enthusiasts of victorian literature and tentacle monster porn enthusiasts hg wells wouldn't be in the middle of that venn diagram himself because as previously established uh, his tastes were obviously <laughs> frustratingly pedestrian at first i thought a house had fallen across the road it was only as i clambered among the ruins that i saw with a start, this mechanical Samson lying, with its tentacles bent and smashed and twisted among the ruins it had made. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the Samson reference there, of course. Biblical reference to Samson with the good hair, uh, who you get it cut off by... Is it Delilah? I think it's Delilah. Cuts his hair off 
in the Old Testament and he loses all his strength. I think it is Delilah, because you know there's that favourite um, Tom Jones song, Why Did You Do That, Delilah? Fucking hell, that was rude. <laughs> that song absolutely slams that intro. Yeah. The, the stakes of that song at the start are so high. You feel like it's not going to go into a chorus where he's asking why she did something. In What's New Pussycat? <laughs> Is he singing to a person or a cat? <laughs> the forepart was shattered. It seemed as if it had driven blindly straight at the house and had been overwhelmed in its overthrow. It seemed to me then that this might have happened by a handling machine escaping from the guidance of its Martian. I could not clamber among the ruins to see it, and the twilight was now so far advanced that the blood with which its seat was smeared and the gnawed gristle of the Martian that the dogs had left were invisible to me. The dogs have ate the marsh. Bear in mind, this has only been about two weeks. Do you think at that point dogs would have gone fully mad? I don't know how how close to madness were dogs in the Victorian era, just generally. That's a very good point. Victorian era was one of these eras where just mercury was in everything. <laughs> Wondering still more at all that I had seen, I pushed on towards Primrose Hill. Far away, through a gap in the trees, I saw a second Martian as motionless as the first standing in the park towards the zoological gardens, and silent. Shh. The bears are sleeping. It has reminded me of something I'm really furious about, though, which is that in, uh, in astrobiology, the, the, the zone in which a planet rests, where conditions are exactly correct for life to occur, is called the Goldilocks zone. Because it's not too far away from the sun, it's not too close to its sun, it's, uh, it's just right, it's just the right distance, just right. That's called the Goldilocks zone. And I think, that I think that's outrageous because there was nothing just right about Goldilocks. She's one of history's most notorious home invaders. <laughs> for that to be accurately titled, it should be called the Baby Bear's Porridge Zone. A little beyond the ruins, about the smashed handling machine, I came upon the red weed again, and found the Regent's Canal, a spongy mass of dark red vegetation. As I crossed the bridge, the sound of ceased. It was, as it were, cut off. The silence came like a thunderclap. The dusky houses about me stood faint and tall and dim. The trees towards the park were growing black. All about me the red weed clambered among the ruins, writhing to get above me in the dimness. Night, the mother of fear and mystery, was coming upon me. But while that voice sounded the solitude, the desolation had been endurable. By virtue of it London had still seemed alive, and the sense of life about me had upheld me. Then suddenly a change, the passing of something, I knew not what, and then a stillness that could be felt. Nothing but this gaunt quiet. London about me gazed at me spectrally. The windows in the white houses were like the eye sockets of skulls. About me my imagination found thousand noiseless enemies moving. Terror seized me, a horror of my temerity. In front of me the road became pitchy black as though it was tarred, and I saw a contorted shape lying across the pathway. I could not bring myself to go on. I turned down St. John's Wood Road and ran headlong from this unendurable stillness towards Kilburn. I hid from the night and the silence, until long after midnight, in a cabman's shelter in Harrow Road. But before the dawn my courage returned, and while the stars were still in the sky I turned once more towards Regent's Park. I missed my way among the streets, and presently saw down a long avenue, in the half-light of the early dawn, the curve of Primrose Hill. On the summit, towering up to the fading stars, was a third Martian, erect and motionless like the others. An insane resolve possessed me. I would die and end it, and I would save myself even the trouble of killing myself. I marched on recklessly towards this titan, and then, as I drew nearer and the light grew, I saw that a multitude of black birds was circling and clustering about the hood. At that, my heart gave a bound and I began running along the road. I hurried through the red weed that choked St. Edmund's Terrace. I waded breast high across a torrent of water that was rushing down from the waterworks towards Albert Road, and emerged upon the grass before the rising of the sun, 
great mounds had been heaped about the crest of the hill, making a huge redoubt of it. It was the final and largest place the Martians had made, and from behind these heaps there rose a thin smoke against the sky. Against the skyline, an eager dog ran and disappeared. Metaphor alert! Metaphor alert! I know that we're coming round to some more exams again, so if anybody's listening to this uh, for their GCSEs or A-levels, just, uh, you know, maybe mention the dogs as a bit of imagery. You know, they're, they're sort of a, uh, an animal that's, that's sort of part urbanised, but also can be wild, and it's a bit like the, uh, the, the conditions of man that they find themselves in. But uh, the dogs are rising up, nature's returning, in some way life is coming back. Maybe, maybe there's someone in that? I don't know. I don't know, I reckon you got it covered. You've probably got enough on your plate without thinking about this. The thought that had flashed into my mind grew real. Grew credible. I felt no fear, only a wild, trembling exultation as I ran up the hill towards the motionless monster. Out of the hood hung lank shreds of brown, at which the hungry birds pecked and tore. In another moment, I had scrambled up the earthen rampart and stood upon its crest and the interior of the redoubt was below me. A mighty space it was, with gigantic machines here and there within it, huge mounds of material and strange shelter places, and scattered about it, some in their overturned war machines, some in the now rigid handling machines, and a dozen of them stark and silent and laid in a row with the Martians dead. Holy shit, all the Martians have just been wiped out, what by? I wonder, I bet, I bet it's gonna like slowly fold out and we're gonna gradually realise what it was, that's what's gonna happen. Slain by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain as the red weed was being slain. Slain after all man's devices had failed by the humblest things that God, in his wisdom, has put upon this earth. Oh, he just went ahead and explicitly said what it was. Wow, I mean, what's the opposite of, like, burying the lead? Is it, like, digging up, digging up the cables? For so it had come about, as indeed I and many men might have foreseen had not the terror and disaster blinded our minds. Whoa, 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 come on, mate. That is, that is a bold claim from you that if you were slightly calmer, you could have figured that the bacteria would come. You, a man who's tried to eat two dogs and nearly murdered someone over a biscuit, could have foreseen that. That is, that's a real bit of revisionism right here. These germs of disease have taken toll of humanity since the beginning of things, taken toll of our pre-human ancestors since life began here. But by virtue of this natural selection of our kind, we have developed resisting power. To no germs do we succumb without a struggle. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say that uh, nobody... Nobody listening to this in the year 2022 uh, who, who has any memory of the last two years uh, necessarily subscribes to, to that point of view that, that the narrator has shared there. I mean, even then there was indigenous populations that were just wiped out from uh, smallpox and bacteria brought from colonists, but uh, let's, let's crack on anyway, let's crack on. And to many, those that cause putrefaction in dead matter, for instance, our living frames are altogether immune. But there are no bacteria in Mars. And directly, these invaders arrived. Directly, they drank and fed. Our microscopic allies began to work their overthrow. Already, when I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed. Dying and rotting, even as they went to and fro. It was inevitable. By the toll of a billion deaths, man has bought his birthright of the Earth. And it is his against all comers. It would still be his were the Martians ten times as mighty as they are. For neither do men live nor die in vain. Here and there they were scattered, nearly fifty altogether, in that great gulf they had made. Wait, there are fifty of these now? Hang on, so where were all the cylinder bangs that we heard about? Are you telling me that we're only seeing one small point of view of a larger global invasion? Nah. I think everything he saw was objectively fact. Sorry, but that's where I'm taking the cannon from, and also, that's the funniest point of view, so I'm gonna carry on with it, thank you very much. Overtaken by death that must have seemed to them as incomprehensible as any death could be. To me also at that time, this death was incomprehensible. All I knew was that these things that had been alive and so terrible to men were dead. 
For a moment, I believed that the destruction of the Sennacherib had been repeated, that God had repented, that the angel of death had slain them in the night. Hey, it's me, the explaining lad. How's it going? Look, there's quite a lot going on in this chapter. I mean, the Martians have been destroyed. We've also got three to four guests. And quite frankly, I think my subplot can maybe take one chapter off. Is that okay? Could you give me a little minute of rest? Thank you. Okay, so Sennacherib it is a... Bible reference! Who'd have guessed in the Victorian times? They bloody love a reference to the classics and, 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 and the Bible. So, Sennacherib was a, a king of Assyria. Uh, that's, a, that's a big empire back in the uh, BC time. So he had a lot of military campaigns against Babylon and most importantly, the Hebrew kingdom of Judah. Uh, and, and obviously, like, so what's the headline? Well, basically, King Sennacherib tried to take down the, uh, the Hebrew kingdom. And as you might imagine for the people protected by God within the Bible, didn't quite work out. Uh, he had a little bit of a rumbling with the angel of death. I won't spoil it for you because I'm sure you're all going to go and read that straight after you hear this. But uh, it's a pretty spicy. Anyway, I'm going to go back to whatever I was up to. I think I was angry about something to do with my existence. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Richard Brown! Dave said, as we were recording, that I, 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 sh I should talk to you about Octopus, because I understand you're not, not necessarily an expert, but re a big lobbyist for Octopus relations. I think this comes from Gabe. Um, I was talking to Gabe about, like, like, I don't eat meat, but I grew up working on farms and stuff. Like, your choices, your choices live how you want to live. I'm generally cool with all that stuff. But if people eat octopuses, they're dead to me. <laughs> they're, they're so cool. They're so smart. Like, they have three hearts, you know, the capacity to give you so much love, even though it's not for that. It's for, like, pumping blood round to their, like, eight arms. Right, right, right. Well, that's the thing, because in the, in the book, um, the way that H.G. Wells describes the Martians when you see them is, like, uh, they've got big old tentacles, Everything's very heavy for them, like gravity, because gravity on Earth is three times stronger than Mars. Um, so they're meant to be sort of squidging along. But that's kind of how an octopus generally moves anyway. Yeah, because they don't have bones and they can um, like squish up and get through tiny holes and get into jars and coconuts and stuff. Amazing. They're great. They're great. I'm big on them. And uh, do they drink blood ever? Is, is, that, is that canon? Have you ever heard them drink blood? I've not. Okay, that's that no, is a blow. But, that is a blow. I'm, I'm not gonna um, lie. I do know. Um, they have blue blood. What? They have blue blood, which, like, I think, literally, not like they're all cops. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they have blue blood, and they shoot ink. Um to like the and the ink they shoot is like poisonous right yeah 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 and if they shoot it and then hang around they they can die oh because it's poisonous to them as well oh no oh god but that's another like that's the other thing in this is that there's black smoke um which like did hg wells just like go to an aquarium May, when was it when was this book written so it was written like 1895 and then published 1897 okay so it's probably quite a while after Aristotle wrote about octopuses in yeah. 350 BC, but he was like way off. Um, I've got this here. Aristotle wrote, the octopus is a stupid creature for it will approach a man's hand if it be lowered in the water, but it is neat and thrifty in its habits. <laughs> um, and, then, and then he writes about it, like shooting shells and stuff. So I guess by the 1850s, we probably had a bit more understanding. Yeah, I mean, they would have had... So Darwin, like, H.G. Wells studied under... Oh, what's his face? Huxley. Um, Thomas Huxley, who was, like, Charles Darwin's boy. Yeah. Well, so much underwater life is really alien in the yeah. way it moves. Like, you watch an Attenborough series and they'll do one where it's, like, the deep dive. Yeah, yeah Where they yeah. get into one of those specially made tanks and everything's pitch black and you've got, like these creepy looking alien fish that waddle along the bottom of the ocean bed. I, and it's... I, I'm a big fan of creatures having light in them. I think that's great. Yeah. I'd love to have a light in me. That would be really useful. Like yeah. if I could just punch my stomach at night and be like, Ugh! 
Oh, great. Finally. Things are just better with lights in them. Shoes, yeah, yeah, creatures, yeah. other things. <laughs> <laughs> Comedy rule of threes, but I, I ran out of steam there. Have you got a favourite octopus? Paul. He's Paul. Paul the octopus. Paul's the octopus that predicted, correctly predicted every, I think it was World Cup match. What? Um, let me google this and because i want to get it right don't want to disrespect sure you want respect to paul obviously of course paul the octopus was a common octopus used to i mean that's a bit offensive common octopus used to predict the result of international association football matches accurate predictions in the 2010 world cup brought him worldwide attention as an animal oracle so he was predicting he was only predicting germany's games whether they'd win or lose and he got every single one right Oh no, he got two of them wrong. Sorry. Uh, well, you know what? That's how many matches was. There's more. There was. There was. I think it's a decent hit rate. Yeah. No. 2008, he got two wrong. 2010, he got every single one. Oh right. my god. So not not. Only, you can see the progression of um. Is I I I'm I'm nervous to say this, but Richard, what's he doing now? He, he's dead. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he got like when he died. It was on like BBC News and stuff. That's amazing. He got he got a bigger obituary than I'm ever gonna achieve. <laughs> I love fair play to him. Yeah, in Paul's quite interesting life, he got a lot of death threats as well. What? <laughs> yeah. So he was he was predicting the games. I think it was basically there was like two coconuts with like each okay. team on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On whichever one he went into, that's what they considered the prediction. Um and people started blaming him when Germany went out of the World Cup and sending him death threats and threatening to eat him and stuff. The second hit, The Guardian, did Paul the Octopus predict his own death? What? <laughs> That's the headline. Subheader, we will never know. What? Come on! <laughs> the police desperately putting two coconuts in front of his corpse. Going, Paul, we need your magic once more. Please, who did it? <laughs> Oh, I'm looking at a picture. It, it wasn't coconuts. It was just like a clear box with a flag of the country they were playing and the German flag. I feel like that's more impressive because you you might be able to swing it with like, I don't know if there's a more beautiful side of a coconut that you could be like, you know what I mean? Whereas a clear box, isn't it? You know what? I think if he came to Earth, he he certainly invaded our hearts, didn't he? Maybe, maybe we should get carry on with reading it. I mean, it looks a bit... Admittedly, the last few paragraphs have seemed a little choppy because they've not had any bacteria in Mars. I'm sure everything will work out. I stood staring into the pit, and my heart lightened gloriously, even as the rising sun struck the world to fire about me with his rays. The pit was still in darkness. The mighty engines, so great and wonderful in their power and complexity, so unearthly in their torturous forms, rose weird and vague and strange out of the shadows towards the light. A multitude of dogs, I could hear, fought over the bodies that lay darkly in the depth of the pit, far below me. Pit of puppies. Yeah, just like a pu- puppy pit. Yeah. That's a great. I mean, you can't, it's not, that's not how people get dogs anymore, is it? You don't just go to a pet shop and buy them, but the puppy pit would be a <laughs> spectacular pet shop name. Across the pit on its farther lip, Flat and vast and strange lay the great flying machine with which they had been experimenting upon our denser atmosphere when decay and death arrested them. Death had not come a day too soon. Uh, so they had the handling machines, which was the ones that caught the people like a little crab, the tripods, the fighting machines, which we know, and they were working on a flying machine. How, how did they get from Mars to Earth, but then they can't get from, like, London to the North? I mean, Northern Rail's a bastard, isn't it? They came to London, and they tried to take over and put put in place their own rule where they only had the infrastructure to travel sort of immediately around them with no care for the North. What a, what a big change they were bringing. <laughs> at the sound of coring overhead, I looked up at the huge fighting machine that would fight no more forever. At the tattered red shreds of flesh, that dripped down upon overturned seats on the summit of Primrose Hill. Wait, you're telling me that the first opportunity you get, and after you've heard the artilleryman going on about it for ages, you're not grabbing with both hands the chance to have a go in a fighting machine to try and drive a tripod around. Really? I turned and looked down the slope of the hill to where, and haloed now in birds, stood those other two Martians that he had seen overnight. 
just as death had overtaken them. Yeah, the fr- the phrase "death has overtaken them" is just like because it's like the idea that life is just a marathon where you're running away from death, but it's a marathon that you have to sprint, and then eventually death overtakes you and you just die. That sentence is so grim. <laughs> life is like the Tour de France, and death has a moped. <laughs> <laughs> The one had died, even as it had been crying to its companions. Perhaps it was the last to die, and its voice had gone on perpetually until the force of its machinery was exhausted. They glittered now, harmless tripod towers of shining metal in the brightness of the rising sun. All about the pit, and saved as by a miracle from everlasting destruction, stretched the great mother of cities. How did Jeff Wayne read sentences like saved as by a miracle from everlasting destruction and then go yeah yeah i'll do it this way <laughs> and, and not come out sounding like man o war <laughs> those who have only seen london veiled in her somber robes of smoke can scarcely imagine the naked clearness and beauty of the silent wilderness of houses eastward over the blackened ruins of the Albert Terrace and the splintered spire of the church, the sun blazed dazzling in a clear sky, and here and there some facet in the great wilderness of roofs caught the light and glared with a white intensity. Have you ever have you ever been to been to London? Uh, yes. Has yes. It, has it, have you seen? Was it covered in smoke when you went? Um, no, it wasn't. It was. Uh... Yeah, if see if these aliens bring people who say thank you when you hold the door open for them, I'm fine with them. Can somebody maybe they were super polite and it was death by rudeness is what did it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, there's a there was an episode of QI they talked about um, this sort of sickness that uh, tourists get, predominantly like I think Japanese tourists in places like Paris and London where they have this romanticized idea of the place and then they get there and the people are so rude that they can't handle it and they oh my god they have like a proper breakdown um maybe that's that's what's going to yeah. get these aliens the real in fact the real bacteria is unkindness <laughs> <laughs> northward were kilburn and hampstead blue and crowded with houses westward the great city was dimmed and southward beyond the martians the green waves of regent's park the langham hotel the dome of the Albert Hall, the Imperial Institute, and the giant mansions of Brompton Road came out clear and little in the sunrise, the jagged ruins of Westminster rising hazily beyond. Far and away in blue were the Surrey Hills, and the towers of the Crystal Palace glittered like two silver rods. The dome of St Paul's was dark against the sunrise, and injured, I saw for the first time, by a huge gaping cavity on its western side. And as I looked at this wide expanse of houses and factories and churches, silent and abandoned, as I thought of the multitudinous hopes and efforts, the innumerable hosts of lives that had gone to build this human reef, and of the swift and ruthless destruction that had hung over it all, when I realised that the shadow had been rolled back, and that men might still live in the streets, and this dear, vast, dead city of mine be once more alive and powerful. I felt a wave of emotion that was near akin to tears. He's, 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 what, he's experienced something that no other, like, no, no, no one has ever experienced before. It's one, not only seeing an alien at the start point, seeing the destruction they've done, countless bodies he's had to move around. He wrote academic, like, like not even books articles before this so he just sat at home most of the time most of his mates are dead one of them's gone mad that he only made friends with because he told him to look for biscuits in a house he's traveled looking for his wife he doesn't know where she's gone and he thinks he might be close to having a little cry at this point (laughs) that's what he can muster yeah men will literally fight aliens and run around the country before going to therapy (laughs) i know that um like one of the things, the reason you often get like, like phone footage from quite horrible accidents and people like escaping them is because mm. psychologically you hold your phone up 
so you're still there but it puts a bit of a buffer between you mm-hmm. and this horrible situation so like um i think it happened with like um like bombings on the london underground the yeah. seven seven ones people escaping had their phones up because they were looking through their screen like hg wells didn't have that maybe that's why the narrator's right maybe the narrator's got like a pad a pad and a quill up <laughs> like every moment he's got in front of him he's scribbling it this this narrator's pad and quill is like the original Bat Black Mirror. <laughs> it's his buffer so he doesn't have to, you know, deal with the feelings that come with the situation he's in. What we're reading is somebody who's not only struggled to learn how to ride a bike, he struggled to connect with his wife, he struggles to make and keep lasting relationships, and he just also happens to be dealing with the trauma of a Martian invasion. <laughs> the torment was over. Even that day, the healing would begin. The survivors of the people scattered over the country, leaderless, lawless, foodless, like sheep without a shepherd, the thousands who had fled by sea, would begin to return. The pulse of life, growing stronger and stronger, would beat again in the empty streets and pour across the vacant squares. Whatever destruction was done, the hand of the destroyer was stayed. All the gaunt wrecks, the blackened skeletons of houses that stared so dismally at the sunlit grass of the hill would presently be echoing with the hammers of the restorers and ringing with the tapping of their trowels. At the thought, I extended my hands towards the sky and began thanking God. In a year, thought I, in a year! This is someone who clearly hasn't experienced uh, the time frames that builders work in, isn't it? A year, a year to rebuild all of London. You're, you're right, pal. That's a hell of a deadline for a project manager to hit. With overwhelming force came the thought of myself. Of my wife. And the old life of hope and tender helplessness that had ceased forever. Oh my god! What a turn! The Martians! Well, at least the Martians in London, done for! By bacteria, I mean, he really he really didn't hold back, did he? That It all happened in one chapter. The big twist that we all kind of knew, but I didn't quite know whether to, to reveal it or not. Uh, that That's that's done. The, the kipper's out the bag. That's a phrase, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, a massive thank you to the guests that came on today. We had David Callahan, we had Gabriel Featherstone, and we had Richard Brown. You have ample opportunity within Scotland to see all three of these guys. So firstly, you've got Richard Brown doing horror show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He's doing that every day in August, more or less, except for the 16th, at Monkey Barrel Comedy on Nidri Street, uh, the studio there. That's venue 80, if you're keen on the numbers, and that is at 9.35 every night. So uh, be sure to go check that out. Uh, Then we've got David Callahan. David is bringing his show, um, Everything That To Me Is Falling Apart. Uh, That's a theatre show. Uh, and, and it looks really cool. It's like he's made these sort of um, augmented reality boxes and he has a little train on a camera that goes around for it. So that is at Greenside at Infirmary Street, uh, which is at 11.30 each day. And that's more or less every day at the Fringe as well. Uh, he's skipping a few days, so keep an eye out for that. Gabriel Featherstone will be up at the Edinburgh Fringe also called Featherstone with a show called Featherstone & Co. Laughter O'Clock. That's at Pilgrim Bar at quarter past four and on the 6th of August till the 28th. He's got Ruth Hunter, Roisin Kelly, Roisin Kelly and Eddie McKenzie there. And he also runs a cabaret called Tinsel Goods every third Monday of the month, except for August, in Glasgow. I, of course, have my show, Eddie Hurst's comedy version of Jeff Wayne's musical version of H.G. Wells' literary version by Orson Welles' radio version and Steven Spielberg's film version of The War of the Worlds. The show born from this podcast, or the, the the podcast born from that show. However you wanna, however you wanna look at it, you can you can make that a real Morbius strip of origins there. So it's gonna be at Buxton on the seventh and the fourteenth for underground venues. It's going to be at Nairsborough at the Fraser Theatre on the twenty third of July. I'll be at Blizzard Comedy in Manchester at Gulliver's on the twenty eighth of July, and I'll be up at the Edinburgh Fringe from the sixteenth to the twenty third of August, ten forty p.m. at the Mash House. Uh, so you can find tickets for everything on my social media which is at edyhurst and thank you so much for listening please do like rate subscribe and share on social
social media. It does really make a difference in getting the word out. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you for Chapter 9. And we've also got a few academic... Uh, we've also got a few experts coming on. We've got a few expert interviews uh, coming up in between that as well to give a little bit more colour and more sort of information about, like, what germ theory meant in Victorian times and what sort of what sort of technology would have been expected of uh, Victorians and Edwardians fighting a Martian invasion at that time. Would have been there from uh, the Leeds Armory's firearms experts. So they're really exciting, and, and please do subscribe and keep an eye out. Okay, see you later. Bye! Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds was produced and created by me, Eddie Hurst, with special guests Gabriel Featherstone, Richard Brown, and David Callahan. Thank you to Ichabod Wolf for use of the song The Fall of Saigon from his album Carry On Crow, and to Jason Cook for the fantastic background music that we saw in this chapter. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share, and you can follow me on social media at EDY Hurst. Thanks very much, guys. Bye.